This is Chapter 155 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, a newly discovered story from Little Women author Louisa May Alcott. Then we shine a light on three groundbreaking female athletes in this week's Summer Read. If you only think Louisa May Alcott authored the American classic Little Women, think again. During her career, Alcott was a prolific writer of novels, poems, short stories, even a few thrillers. In their latest issue, The Strand magazine is releasing a previously unpublished story of hers titled Aunt Nellie's Diary. I spoke with managing editor Andrew Gooley about the 171-year-old find. Well, the interesting thing about it is that there are a lot of indexes to her work. And it's, you know, it's a lot of research just going through these catalogs and indexes that uh, are from Harvard University. And I found this title and it looked very unfamiliar to me. And then I contacted one of my researchers and they made some copies of it. And then I had it transcribed. And most of the time when you embark on such a venture, you find that the thing that you've thought was this treasure that was lost has turned out to have been published before. But this time I did some more research and it seemed that it was not published before. And I contacted one of the foremost uh, Alcott scholars and he called me from Switzerland and he's like, Andrew, I think you've, I think this has never been published before. And he did some more research and he confirmed the fact. So this was, one of the uh, few and wonderful moments where you have you've come across something that was a little gem that was never released before. Tell us a, a little bit about Aunt Nellie's diary. The story is it's told through the from the perspective of a very strong, independent woman. She's single. She's turned. She's forty years old, and she's uh, in this wonderful house in this idyllic town and her niece is there who's a very kind hearted person and her niece brings a friend along who's rather unpredictable and rather manipulative and then the story gets a little has a little more intrigue when uh, a son of Aunt Nellie's friend ends up visiting the household and as you can imagine the two girls are vying for his attention And from there, you start finding out things about some of the backstories of the characters, which were not revealed until the latter half of the story. So uh, it's, in many respects, it shows Alcott's great grasp of psychology of people. Uh, And when I read it, I could not believe how young she was when she had written it. She was a teenager, right? She was 17 years old. When I read that, I just said to myself, my God, when I, when, I was, when I was 17, my idea of how people were, if they were 20 years older than me, was so much more different than hers. And when you, when, you, when you were reading through this, I said, my goodness, she was very, very, very ahead of her time. You could just see that she had all the parts in place to become the great writer that she became about 20 years later when she was a little woman, little woman. The crazy thing about this story that you've published is that it kind of ends it ends in a in an ellipsis because she didn't finish it. That's and at the good part like, I might add as well. <laughs> exactly, a, a great point. It's the good part and it's also something where you you start asking yourself, okay, 
Now, how could this possibly end? Since I publish a lot of mysteries, uh, if this was a mystery story, I would be saying to myself, mm, this is now really difficult because you have probably 300 to 3,000 alternative endings. Uh, and it's sort of a novel that's more of a, a straight-up uh, novel slash novella. The story paths could be, you know, up to maybe 100 story paths. So we are launching a contest for writers, our beginning writers, writers, our established writers, to come up with an ending, and we'll publish the ending in the uh, fall edition of The Strand magazine. We're happy that, in a way, if with an unfinished story, at times you feel that the chapter is just closed on it. But what I'm happy about is that we're trying to make something positive out of something that could be construed as a missed opportunity by bringing the writer back into the national consciousness of readers and having people compete to try to come up with a solution to the story. Is there any sort of hesitation on your part in in putting out something that the author maybe never intended to have put into the public realm? Well, my wise my wise guy remark to that always is that writers need editors, and writers many times don't know what's in their best interest. I.e., <laughs> Conan Doyle never liked Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but on a more serious note. In this type of a business where I'm always researching and archives looking for works that have never been published before, I've come across my share of works by great authors that has, when you just read through it, you feel it's not going to enhance their legacy. And I've passed on such works many, 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 many times because I've just said to myself, if I'm not a scholar, this is not a scholarly journal. It's more of a magazine for a wide range readership. So I never want to publish something and then have our subscribers look at it and say to them, say, oh, my God, you've not done any favors to this author's legacy. And you just, you know, sold some copies on the short term. But in the long term, we never want to read your magazine again. So whenever Whenever we come across something of this nature, we make sure it's something that we would have published even if the author was not famous. And with this story, this was the case. It was just very, very well done, very solid, solidly constructed story that just keeps you riveted from the first to the last page. Was there any editing involved or is this exactly how it, she had written it? This is exactly how she's written. And I mean, there were words here and there where we said to ourselves, what are we going to do about it? And we, you know, it was almost a committee of people saying, okay, it said, it, this is a meaning, that's a meaning. But generally, just for a few occasions to edit, this was 99.9% of, of her work. The transcription process, now that was, that was something where at some point my trusted transcriber said, Andrew, I've lost my touch. But she regained her touch in time. <laughs> I, You know, reading old handwriting, even if you just read like your grandparents' handwriting, you can, you can it's very hard to understand. I can't even imagine going back like 170 years and trying to decipher what was written on a page. I know. I mean, that, that's a great point because 
I'm one of these people where I have to ask my wife or my sister to decipher my own handwriting. <laughs> so it's kind of an odd business for me to get into and to trying to find, look at these manuscripts and try to decipher these authors because I'm just always confused about handwriting to the point where I was like, okay, I give up about this. But in this case, the handwriting was just very, very, very difficult to transcribe. But we, we thanked our lucky stars that this was, printed on very good paper because a lot of times when you contact libraries, they'll say, I'm sorry, you can't even look at this. You, this is just like, if, if anybody looks at this, if anybody breathes on this paper, it's just going to crumble. <laughs> but, uh, but fortunately, Alcott seemed to have written on some very fine quality paper. You know, the story as it's printed in your magazine it just seems so fully formed and it is so well written that you can't help but wonder why she pushed it aside and never returned to it. I think she was having a, a hard life at that time. Her father was, uh, her father had several ventures that didn't uh, pan out. He started several schools and he was a man who was very ahead of his time in that he encouraged all his daughters to, you know, get as educated as they can get and to read and to paint. Uh, and from a very early age, and when she was a teen, some of his ventures were not panning out. And his uh, his wife ended up, and Alcott's mother ended up supporting them. And then Louisa May Alcott, a few years later, ended up helping support her family because of the, the financial distress that her father had suffered. Let's go back to this, the sort of contest that you're having for people to finish the story. What If, if there's someone listening who's interested and, and wants to take a stab at it, what, what should they do? Well, we are going to be posting guidelines in the next couple of days. And if people subscribe to our email newsletter, which is something that's you know obviously free of charge, we are going to be posting a link to uh, to guidelines uh, for writers to complete the uh, to complete the work. Excellent. Well, we've been talking with Andrew Gooley. He's the managing editor of The Strand magazine. Thank you for spending some time with us and, you know, doing all that research and digging up this wonderful gem of a story. It was my pleasure, Lisa. Right around now, the world should have been gearing up for the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. But like many things, the 2020 Games have been postponed due to the coronavirus pandemic. If you're looking for a way to bolster your team spirit, look no further than Fast Girls, the new historical fiction novel about the 1936 Women's Olympic track and field team. Author Elise Hooper tells us how she stumbled upon this group of groundbreaking female athletes. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because my daughter will be really happy too. Um, my first two novels were about artists. And I was actually in the very early stages of working on a third novel about an artist. But my younger daughter is a swimmer. She's on swim team year round. And in fourth grade, she had to do a biography project for her library class. And she picked Gertrude Ederly. Now, have you ever heard of Gertrude Ederly? I don't think I have. No, I hadn't either. But she turns out she was a really big deal in the 1920s and 30s. She was a swimmer, a champion swimmer. Um, in the 1924 Olympics in Paris, she won three medals. And then two years later, she was the first 
Woman to Swim the English Channel. And she came home to New York City and was fetted with a ticker tape parade. And she was like of the caliber, you know, of Amelia Earhart, really um, huge celebrity. President Woodrow Wilson called her America's best girl. And she was getting headlines left and right. And so as I'm doing this research with my daughter, I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, I have played sports my entire life. Yet I've never heard of Ederly. Who else is out there uh, that I could explore and possibly, you know, write a book about? Because I love sports. Again, I've been playing them all my entire life. I've had all kinds of dreams at various points in my life of being an Olympian in a variety of different sports. <laughs> so um, I started digging around, and I have a background in track uh, and did a lot of distance running. And so when I found, I think it was first, it was Betty Robinson's story, which is just so remarkable. As an Olympian, she recovers from this horrific plane crash to come to stage what I think is one of the greatest comeback stories ever. And then I found Louise Stokes and Helen Stevens, and I just knew that I knew these were my three, the three women of my next book. Was it easy to narrow down to those three women because these teams were made up of six and seven women each? That's true. Actually, there were a lot of women in the mix. And to be honest, the the more research I did, I mean, there are so many fascinating stories. Um, but I think, I, I mean, Betty was one I just knew I had. Because of the comeback story about the plane crash, I knew this was a part of it. She also was the first woman to win a medal uh, and a gold medal at that in uh, track and field in the Olympics because 1928 marked the first year women were invited to compete in track and field. And so there's kind of this period of 1928, 1932, and 1936 that almost form this discrete period in track and field history because then the next two Olympics will be canceled because of the World War. Uh, so so I was knew that was going to be kind of my time period that I was working in. And I, what I really loved about uh, Louise and Helen and Betty's stories is they're three women who all kind of arrive in the same place but come from such different angles. I mean, they all have such different backstories. But I just felt they presented as a threesome a very compelling view into this fascinating period in history. Out of that trio, was it easier to piece together the lives of some of them rather than the others as opposed to the others? Yes, it was. Uh, Betty and Helen both have biographies written about them. And, and to be honest, there, there's just more of a record on them. Uh, the, I was in touch with so many librarians and archivists who really helped me out uh, in Illinois and then also in in Missouri. In fact, I was able to work with Helen's official biographer, who had been a friend of Helen's back in the day. Uh, they had known each other personally. And, and so I was able to get help from these librarians and these uh, historical societies to really piece together the historical record on these two women. Louise Stokes is a different story. There is not as much about her at all. There are no books about her. She, she, if anything, and I should, let me back it up here to explain possibly why that is. She was um, one of two of the first black women to qualify for the Olympics, in, and this happened in 1932. And so she's a girl who grows up outside of Boston in a small town called Malden, Massachusetts. Well, now it's kind of a thriving small city, but a small town at the time. And she is one of, you know, a few black families in the town. She's the granddaughter of slaves. She rises up through the New England sort of racing scene to then receive this invitation to try out for the Olympics in Chicago in 1932 and then travel on, of course, to Los Angeles to the actual games themselves. But, you know, her, I mean, all of these women, their lives are 
so, uh, you know, the newspapers like spell their names differently in every article. I, I mean, they were definitely kind of a second thought to all reporters. And, and often, and in fact, I, I write a lot of newspaper stories in this book and kind of the tone of the time because it's very notable. And I think modern readers will, uh, you know, be kind of horrified by the language some of these journalists use when speaking about these women. They describe them as like the buxom gal in lane three or things like that. Um, they were always sort of a sideshow for the Olympics. And so nowhere was that more evident than in the case of Louise Stokes and also Tidy Pickett, who was the other black woman. I mean, they had not only sexism working against them, but also racism. And so Louise, I, you know, there were sort of some chapters in various books about track and field on them, but there wasn't a whole lot. And I managed to locate then an article in the Boston Globe about Louise that I think ran in the late 70s. And it was written by a sports journalist who now lives in Vermont, and I was able to track him down. And he was so generous with me. He sent me this enormous file he had been accumulating over the years on Louise. He had spent hours in the Malden Public Library going through their old local newspaper on microfiche. <laughs> we saved my eyesight, if nothing else, too. Um, and so he sent me this great file all about her. And through these articles, I was able to piece together a story. And where I wasn't, you know, where there were gaps in the record, I did research so I could responsibly use my imagination to recreate what life would have been like for her. So she is definitely kind of the biggest, the most fictional aspect to this story. And we should note for people who aren't already aware, this is a, a work of historical fiction. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You know, the story takes place in the 20s and the 30s, but it really is full of topics that people are still talking about today. For one being, you know, women equality in sports is is a hot topic and remains one. And systematic racism is something a lot of people are discussing nowadays and ways to remedy it. And, you know, speaking about Luis and Tidy and what happened to them in Los Angeles and then what happened to them in Berlin. It's amazing it just how, how deep all this runs. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I really planned and hoped that this novel would, of course, be relevant this summer because of the Olympics happening in Tokyo. That didn't happen, as we all know. But suddenly this novel is relevant in so many other ways. Large, I mean, a lot of it has to do with the discussions we're having about race and the words we use and um, monuments. I mean, all of this, traditions, all of this plays into the story. And then, of course, large elements of Me Too and how we talk about women. And so, I mean, there has been, I'm kind of amazed that even without the Olympics this summer, I have still so much to talk about with this book. And, and you're right, we're experiencing just this fascinating moment, I think, in women's sports where, to be honest, I think it's a real shame these Olympics aren't happening this summer because I think especially American women were positioned to have such ex exceptional showings. I think that would have really gone a long way to help bolster their cause in areas like pay parity, in sponsorship, in uh, benefits, and also in coaching opportunities and how journalists talk about women athletes. I, I think this is all still 100% relevant. For me, one of the most frustrating parts of the book were those articles that, that you mentioned mm -hmm. and just the way that, you know, how it was seen as, oh, there's women having fainting spells and they're not really fit right. for physical activity. And I love the little oh. aside that women give birth. They, of course, can run 100 meters. <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly, right? I mean, 
I can't even tell you the number of times. Like those articles and reading all those newspapers from the Times were both entertaining and horrifying because you're absolutely right. I mean, people actually worried that women were like their uteruses were going to fall out when they ran or they were going to develop facial hair like beards and mustaches from training hard. It really was amazing to me. I mean, I I had no idea that was really real. I, I figured that was sort of more Victorian beliefs, but no, that was still going strong well into the 30s, 40s. And, and, you know, just to keep things in perspective, Title IX isn't passed until 1972. So we still have many decades more, right, of, of women really struggling to enter marathons and to enter all these different sporting arenas. So, so yeah, it's been a long journey. And yet at the same time, it is amazing. There is still work to be done. I mean, there's still not an equal number of events open to women in the Olympics than there are for men. You know, so right then and there, there's still leadership positions in the Olympic Committee, all of these things. There's still progress to be made for women. And, and you know, it's interesting to note, too, because 1936, I think a lot of people think about Jesse Owens and, and the history yeah. that he made and that African-American male runners were able to make. And, and to this day still, it's the it's the men who still get a lot of the attention unless it's a female-centric sport like gymnastics or something like that. You are, you are so, tr- so true. And, you know, some, a part of the story, though, that was really interesting to me was, so Jesse Owens is such a legend from these games, and rightfully so. He wins four gold medals under the gaze of Hitler. It, it, Jesse was working actively to try to disprove Hitler's theories on racial, you know, white racial supremacy. But what's fascinating to me is so a, a little over 350 American athletes arrived in Berlin to compete. 18 of them were black athletes. Um, we really only know of Jesse, of that group of 18, yet within the medals that were won during those Olympics, that group of 18 won 25% of them. So, I mean, that's a disproportionate amount of success for such a small group to have at these Olympics. And yet we don't really know any of their names, like Ralph Metcalf, Mac Robinson is there. He is Jackie Robinson's older brother. All these other even male athletes have really been glossed over. And that was largely because American newspapers also did not want to report on the successes of black athletes. It was they kind of conceded that Jesse was someone they had to report on, but they were not interested in widening the story to these other men. So. A lot of these men came home with Olympic medals, and they weren't even allowed to compete in various races in this country because of laws in the Jim Crow South and and things that barred them from races, even with Olympic medals under their belt. It's really remarkable. Remarkable and and shameful, and hopefully people will be learning from from that kind of history, although sometimes you got to wonder, right? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that's what we're all hoping right now, right, with so many of the discussions that are taking place. We, we've got to hope that for some progress. I know you mentioned that the book was timed to be released with the Summer Games in Tokyo. Does this sadden you a little bit that there won't be any Olympics happening this year? Oh, it doesn't just sadden me a little bit. It saddens me so much. And of, of course, I am so disappointed on behalf of my book. That would have been lovely. But really, I have been just heartbroken for these athletes. You know, in 1928, 32, sometimes these women had pretty swift tra- trajectories to the Olympics. But nowadays, athletes train their whole lives for these, and they time it perfectly. The Olympics only arrive every four years. So I am really heartbroken for so many of these athletes who have been working and training their whole lives for this moment, only to have it, I I hope it's only postponed and not fully canceled. But I've been following a lot of these athletes and following them on social media. And it's one thing that has really been amazing to me is 
they don't have any special sort of inside track to training. I mean, in March, when the world shut down, they were right there with us in their garages trying to motivate to exercise. And, and swimmers were working very elaborate dry land routines in their backyards and, and things like that. So it's not like they get sort of special treatment. They were right there with us kind of struggling to make sense of what was happening. And I think, too, of of Betty's story sort of being a warning. You never know what's going to happen in the time in between either and whether you will be able to make that comeback if something does happen. I, that is that is such a great point. I mean, so you're right. Betty in 1928 has this really meteoric rise and, and success at, at the Amsterdam Olympics. And then she is thinking, right, she's going to race again in 1932 in Los Angeles. But then this horrific plane crash comes. Now, what is just so incredible about her story is that that's not the end. Even though doctors tell her, you'll be lucky to ever walk again, much less run, you know, time to just focus on the basics here. Betty was not a woman to be told no. And so she really not only just doubled down, she tripled, quadrupled down on her training, on her rehab and therapy to try to get back to fighting shape. I think that's what we're all going to have to be doing now. Double and, and triple down to get back <laughs> oh, to know. where we want to be. I <laughs> right. I think that's so true. <laughs> so you took a little diversion with athletes in, in this latest book. Are you going back to artists for your next one? I'm not, actually. You know, um, my book that I'm working on right now is set in the Philippines. And it's about a group of American women nurses from the Army Corps who were caught in World War II, essentially. When World War II breaks out, they're in the Philippines, and then they are on the front lines uh, working, treating, you know, medically treating the soldiers, and then they are taken as prisoners of war by the Japanese Imperial Army and imprisoned for three years. And they really have an amazing story of perseverance. And, and that story I stumbled upon because my grandfather fought in the Pacific Theater during World War II, not in the Philippines, I should clarify, but I wanted to know more about what he did and what life would have been like for him. And then I stumbled across the story about the nurses and was just, I mean, really, I was totally obsessed. And so I, I actually went to the Philippines in February. I, I went right before the world really shut down. In fact, I had to cut my trip a little bit short to get home in time to Seattle before things really got dicey. But um, I look back on that trip and I, I sort of can't believe that happened. I really can't, <laughs> but it did. And I mean, it was so helpful. I was able to learn so much on that trip. Well, until that book comes out, people can read Fast Girls, a novel of the 1936 Women's Olympic Team. And if they're yearning for an Olympics, too, this will help fill that void. Elise Hooper, thank I, you for talking with thank us. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I certainly hope so. And I really appreciate you having me here. Thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we go on the hunt for a killer with a Puerto Rican Nancy Drew. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.